Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I didn't post a second dig, or diglet, last week because I was at the Drug Policy Alliance's conference in Atlanta. I was speaking on a panel about ending the war on drug dealers. The panel was really powerful, upsetting, and enlightening. This week, to make up for giving you nothing extra last week, I am going to post that whole panel discussion here, which I think you'll find interesting. It was moderated by Asha Bendeli, who is the Drug Policy Alliance's Senior Director of Grants, Partnerships, and Special Projects, and is also just a legendary activist. I'll warn you that I had a terrible bout of insomnia the night before speaking, so I'm not necessarily operating at my most coherent, but I think you'll get my points. Okay, here's the panel. Um, I think in our own um, uh, discussions in, in drug policy alliances, we've taken a deeper dive led by Art Way and his colleague and our colleague, Emily Kaltenbach, who's not here, um, uh, a talk about what does it mean to really reform drug policies if we're only putting it in the context of people who use? Because when we talk about mandatory minimums and that sort of thing, we're often mostly talking about black and brown people, and most often they're charged with possession with intent, if possession makes it into the charge at all. And yet when we were doing our policies, right, it didn't necessarily reflect how you were going to specifically deal with and address the question of people who are incarcerated for selling. And those are the cases that are out there that have put people, Dorothy Gaines got 19 years and seven months, although no drugs were even found in her home. And you know she got, eventually got clemency. But those are some of the things that we're gonna talk about. Kemba, who you'll talk to later, was initially sentenced to 24 years, although again, no drugs even found. So these are the kinds of sentences, and yet it was almost like if drug policy was a third rail issue, within social justice for a long time. Everybody didn't always sort of believe that the drug war was something we should say no to. And within that, the third rail issue was drug sellers. So we finna dig into that. Is that all right with everybody? Good. So let me tell you who we have to have this discussion with us. The first person I'll start over here on my left is Lynn Albrecht, whose case I knew because of her child who is um, locked up for life at this moment. And so she has been the thing that anybody, anybody who has had a child in prison, Mama Tina, knows that this is the hardest thing to ever watch. Your baby, your beloved, your little one, the one who you shared a body with, put in handcuffs and taken away from you. And the dedication that this mother has shown and the courage that she has shown in advocating for her precious son has been inspiring and moving, even when she didn't know that I knew who she was. But please welcome to the panel, Lynn. <laughs> Kemba uh, is a woman I've known for many, many years. And um, long before I worked in drug policy, covering her story when I was a reporter at Essence Magazine and in other um, formats, most of us were laid out to discover there was a young woman from Hampton University who had been sentenced to 24 years in prison on the way that they typically get women, especially in the South, and that's on drug conspiracy laws, where you basically don't have to have any proof of anything. They're very similar to the laws, the RICO statutes. Do we have any lawyers in the house today? Yeah. So when they use RICO statutes because they can't get you on anything else, they can't prove that you did anything, it's the way that they locked up a lot of black activists during the black power movement. We just have these sort of, you know, you don't have to have any proof essentially to put people in prison. And uh, Kemba worked and her family worked with her. She was pregnant when she was arrested. They took care of her son because we don't know what would have happened to that boy who's now so grown and damn gorgeous. <laughs> but um, what would have happened 
when they did that, Kemba wound up serving over six years until she too was granted clemency. And she's here with us. She's written an incredible book. If you haven't seen it, Poster Child. But this is Kemba Smith, my friend and my sister. And we're glad she's here on this side. Let me, and let me turn. So by now you know that Kenny is my fake husband. Y'all know that? But, you know, seriously, Kenny and I have worked together since day one when I first started at Drug Policy Alliance in April of 2005. He envisioned an organization while he was in prison for drug selling. And we came home and he made that organization a reality. It's now one that feeds 300 people a day across the South from Dalton, Alabama. Anybody ever heard of Dalton? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna play with you. But Dalton, Atlanta, in Florida, and in there, he also does political education, but has also changed the laws in the state of Alabama, where it's the only state in the country where people can vote while they are serving time. <laughs> Sitting next to Kenny is my fellow journalist, my new friend. We've done panels before. This is Daniel Denver. And when he, let me look, I'm gonna, we should show you the bios they gave us. I don't know, if, can you see this? Here's everybody's paragraph. Here's Daniel's line. So we'll begin by saying he's humble. But you know, often that's what you have to be when you're a journalist dedicated to telling the stories of other people, which is what Daniel has done as a journalist working for the Slate, for the Nation, for reporting for Jacobin, where he also has a podcast, now just finished a book on immigration policies, as yet untitled, but do look for the name, because it will be out very, when is it gonna be out, Daniel? It'll be out in a year from now, so right in time for the next conference. And it's been reporting on the drug war, and he's gonna be here to help us pull some of this apart. Please welcome Daniel. And Costanza, a new friend who I'm meeting today. Are you originally from Barcelona? So she lives here, so okay, across, across waters has come to be with us and is an extraordinary advocate in law, policy, and human rights. She's the director of the International Center for, let me get say this right, ethnobotanical education, research, and service. In Spain, it's a big thing, it's a big thing. So, so, you know, one of the things that I wanted to start talking about this morning is a little bit about the history, it's sort of, um, unbelievable to um, think about or imagine now uh, that there was a point in, in time that, that people who sold drugs were actually not considered the demons. It's a conversation I also uh, often have with my friend Deborah Small. And we talk about in New York, where we, did, we, didn't, hate, we didn't hate people. They were, they were people like the number runner or somebody who had you know, jobs and there's been all of this um, stuff, it seems, put around basically um, folks who were still mostly poor, some of them still living with their mother, and who are not like these, these people, oh, good morning, Deborah. You know, people who've like grown horns the way that it's been portrayed. And so, Kenny, I wonder if you'll open us up and talk a little bit about the shift in the way that, you know, in your own lifetime, what you began to see about, like when you were a kid, how, how we thought about drug dealers in the community, drug sellers in the community, and what happened by the time you were grown and getting arrested. All right. So <clears throat> I mentioned this in the um, panel yesterday, and I'll go back over it. So I talked to this old police officer, and he told me that we missed the war. And I couldn't understand what he was talking about. He said, you remember back in the 60s, 70s, when the police officers used to wear their blue uniforms, and they were so crisp and cut that even the, the sleeves had, had the biggest creases in them. And their shoes were so shiny, you can look at their flow shine shoes and, and basically see yourself. He said, and then in about the, the, the early 80s, you know, everybody respected the police, this and that and the other. Everybody respected each other. He said, then in the late 80s and right in the early 90s, he said, what happened? I said, what? He said, you didn't notice our uniforms changed. We start coming out in our bulletproof vests, our fatigues, and all that. That's when the shift happened. If anybody look at it back then, I'm growing up in Brooklyn, New York, Nicky Barnes, Frank Lucas, yeah, Frank Matt. Yeah, everybody eventually wants to be from Brooklyn. Oh, <laughs> no. I, I just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just 
just slipped that in there. So, so, you know, and it, we, they were respected. You know, it was any time you would see drug dealers or upcoming drug dealers, people out there around Prospect Park, Flatbush Ave and all, they were the ones that, that us as kids would run to uh, when our parents didn't have stuff to buy us for Christmas and all. The drug dealers were the one that bought in the neighborhood. You know, a lot of us, our mothers and stuff, like my mother right there, she worked on Wall Street, but a lot of the mothers around me, they couldn't even get jobs, couldn't even get food stamps. They couldn't, you know, they wasn't able uh, to get all this stuff. And the drug dealers were the heroes of our neighborhood that showed us that there's a better way. They were entrepreneurs. We knew them just like we knew the man that owned the candy store. And we looked at them just like the man at the candy store. But Remember when they trying to sell you drugs as a kid? No, 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 no. You and, and what made those were the best truant officers I ever seen in my life. <laughs> right, all right. Say, say more about that. You no. turn around and when one of them see you out of school and they like, where, where you, my man? Where, where, why you ain't in school? Get your behind the school, you know. And a single mom didn't even have to worry about her boys back then. Because those drug dealers was the one that would police us, they would make sure we was in school, they would make sure our grades were right, they would even give us money if we had A's and B's, they'd be like, boom, I got you $5. And that turned around when we allowed this drug war to come in and they start demonizing drug people who sold drugs and people who used drugs in the church, and bam, it just all of a sudden turned. That now these same people that we look to as heroes, that we looked up to, that taught us economy in our own communities were the same people that we turned around and demonized and felt like was not our heroes no more, but our villains. Thank you, Thank you so much for that breakdown. And it's probably also important to name for um, those of us who remember the 1970s, I, you know, growing up in New York. You know, it's, not, it's like it's weird to like... I used to always be the baby. Somehow that switched on me. But growing up in New York City in the 1970s, and people remember this, it was in sort of as we moved out of the Vietnam era, the, the United States was in, 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 in le at least in a recession. There were months my parents didn't get paid. They worked for the City University of New York, and New York City went broke. Does anybody remember that? So people like literally did not have jobs, were not getting paid. There were literally no options, and I think that that's important to say, and so I appreciate you breaking that down. I want to begin to pull apart some of the myths that we hold, and let me ask from a mother's perspective, Lynn, the things that, tell a little bit about your son's case, if you would, and the things that were said about your child, who you love, and the things you know as a mom. Yeah, this has been a real eye-opener. I've had a crash course in uh, the drug war and the criminal justice system and seen it up close and personal and I can tell you it's, it's quite terrifying. Um, Ross actually, like others, uh, is not uh, convicted of actually selling drugs. He, it's about a website called Silk Road that was designed to protect privacy and anonymity and where a lot of people did buy and sell drugs. But he is not convicted of actually doing it himself. And he was given double life plus 40 years, no parole for that. He was 26 years old. <laughs> um, and what I, I, I've seen this drug war, and I hadn't, honestly, it wasn't really on my radar a whole lot before this, somewhat, because I had a friend who was arrested and, and got mandatory minimum, and I, I was like, what, what's this mandatory minimum? This was decades ago. And it seemed unconstitutional to me. But um, I realized it's a hard sell when something hasn't, uh, worked for over 45 years to stop drug use and has cost taxpayers over a mil trillion, excuse me, dollars, you've got to sell it somehow. And I think fear of drug sellers is one way. These demons are out there. They're preying on you. You have to, we have to put them in cages. And um, I think this, of course, the drug war feeds this beast that is devouring families. And it's not just Ross that I care about. I've gotten to know families and children and seen the devastation of what's going on here, and, the, and gotten to know the people. They're good people, <laughs> you know? And um, I think this fear-mongering is um, what's going on. We all know that everybody who sells drugs isn't a violent thug. In Ross's case, they had to paint him that way 
So first of all, they gave him a kingpin charge because, you know, website hosts and kingpins, really, you know, equivalent. And because people use the site, he was a kingpin. He was in a conspiracy. And um, so that, that charge makes him like El Chapo or um, Pablo Escobar, who's allegedly responsible for 3,000 uh, deaths, assassinations, and um, murders. Because he's a kingpin, because he had a website. And then they also alleged murder for hire, dropped it later, but the media had already picked it up. They never charged him with it at trial. It was never proven. And yet now it, it affected his sentence. And, and I've talked to other people who are arrested for drug crimes, and they've done the same thing. They have to demonize drug sellers and uh, to keep this thing, to keep the public accepting the fact that they are stealing, you know, well now it's over a trillion dollars of taxpayer money. Yep. So, um, you know, people might not like that if they thought this really wasn't, you know, valid. So, from my point of view, it's an evil thing. I think it's a human rights crisis and um, a national disgrace because of course, you. You probably know that we incarcerate more of our people than any country on earth. Thank you so much, Lynn. And, and Kemba, that's absolutely. Before we go, we do want to make sure to um, share the website that you have so that people can know, learn more about Silk Road and Ross's case. There has been a lot of, oh, look, see, look at this. I have info. You know, that's right, look, mama in the house. Mama in the house. That's right, Mama Tina, you know, organized. So please make sure that um, you see this. It's not- FreeRoss.org, FreeRoss.org. Thank, thank okay. you, Lynn. And, um, and Kemba, I wanna bring you in here too because you were also personally um, demonized and attacked and drug conspiracy laws, particularly in the South where we are right now, have been used to sweep, I mean, just, just sweep away human beings and their incomes and their vote, disrupt their families as though they never existed. So I want you to just take us through a little bit about your case and what happened and, and your family, Kemba, because I want people to see you. Okay, and you're probably gonna have to tell me, okay, Kemba, we have to go to the next person, but I am grateful to be here, grateful for Asha's support, grateful for DPA support. Deborah Small brought me to DPA table while I was still incarcerated with my parents. And she fought along with my parents and DPA and trying to bring me home and bring attention to my case. But everybody had thought my case would be the poster child case for others who were sentenced unfairly within this drug war, um, senseless policies. And basically, I was held accountable for 255 keys of crack cocaine, even though the prosecutor said himself, I never handled, used, or sold any of the drugs that were involved. I turned myself in seven months pregnant. Um, basically, that, you know, people are like, why did you turn yourself in? Basically, um, because my friends thought that the lawyer that I had, he was friends with the prosecutor and it would work to my advantage. Basically, the prosecutor said that if I turned myself in, he would agree to give me a bond. And when I went to turn myself in, the judge was getting ready to release me. The prosecutor stood up and read a statute from out of the law book and basically it prohibited the judge from releasing me. So that was prosecutorial misconduct right there. But I ended up giving birth to my, my son while I was incarcerated. Now, I'm not gonna... Basically, I was a college student, fell in love with a drug dealer. Um, nothing wrong with me falling in love with a drug dealer. And I, I appreciate DPA because I can share my true feelings and emotions here. Because the past two days, I've been talking to kids in um, Fayetteville and at a counselor's conference about making healthy choices. But here, I can talk about where my advocacy had and talk about how these laws are unfair. And... I've been blessed in the fact that I've been, a, be, been able to be around people here within this conference that have elevated my mindset. And so I'm not trying not to go all over the place, but basically I was no threat to public safety. Right. I wouldn't, 
I wouldn't have been defined a criminal. I just made a poor choice in a relationship. And fortunately, I had two parents like you, Lynn, and I commend you for what you're doing, and I think about the pain that they were doing. Nobody really, you're up here being brave, but nobody knows that pain that's deep in your heart that motivates you to be passionate about speaking about your child and making sure they come home. And so I'm grateful that my parents were able to raise my son. After I gave birth to my son, I wasn't able to hold, touch, smell, feel him until months later, until I was transferred to federal prison. The judge, my 86-year-old white judge, was sleeping during expert testimony about the domestic violence and abuse that was going on in my relationship, and that's why I was afraid to cooperate. And Daniel's going to talk about some other things on the panel. The drug dealer that I was in a relationship with, he had some behaviors that needed to be worked on. I mean, he was abusive. He also murdered his best friend because he thought his best friend was cooperating with authorities. But one of the things that's going to be discussed in this panel is the fact that we need to overhaul, disrupt, dismantle this drug war and look at things that work, that are beneficial to public safety, because maybe if they had different policies, maybe drug dealers wouldn't feel the need. And I know everybody in the room is not here, but maybe drug dealers wouldn't feel the need to kill their best friend because they don't want to have to go to prison for life because they know that their boy is going to cooperate and may not get any time. But for me, I'm grateful. I've been in this fight ever since I've been out of prison in 2000. President Clinton granted me executive clemency in December 2000. But... It wasn't easy. Like, there was a movement. Their social media was not going on then. Deborah Small, my parents, parent, um, kids across the country, my friend Tamani and Terrence, they're here in the room. She was a student at Spelman at the time. They had a rally on Spelman's campus. Their mom was my doctor counselor to help treat the trauma that I had endured from the relationship to being oppressed in prison, to being separated from my son, being in a visitation room watching, visit, watching children baby commercials and wondering why I wasn't granted the opportunity to raise my son. And that's my problem with the federal government. And so to sit here and still have friends that have already served 25 years in prison with a life sentence and President Obama denied their commutation the fight still continues, so we have to disrupt what's been going on. And Jeff Sessions needs to just shut up. So I remember, and shut up and get educated because you would look at me and say I was a drug dealer. But no, the prosecutor, the people that you guys hired said I never handled, used, or sold any of the drugs that were involved. So what's up with this drug conspiracy policy? How can you throw people away? I can remember being in a van in Virginia coming out of Norfolk Federal District Court. And men were coming in the van in front of me. Every single black man that got on that van had been handed down a life sentence like it was freaking candy. And still probably sitting in prison for life. And so I sit here today grateful to be on this particular panel because I've been educated. My son knows about his father, yet and still wished that he could have met his father because his father eventually was murdered in Seattle, Washington. They never found out who did it. But his brother, his, his father's brother is still in federal prison serving life. And an attorney had contacted me because she was going to file his commutation paperwork. Brittany, you guys know Brittany, and some of you all do. And basically, I think about him now. Even though he never contacted me to have communication to say, hey, Kimba, are you okay? I don't care about that. He was always nice to me. He never did anything to harm me. Should he still be in prison after 20 years serving a life sentence? Hell no. People should be able to learn from their mistakes, come out, and then I watch, I'm going to shut up, but then I watch the um, sitcom series El Chapo, come on, man. Come on. and freaking, I had no idea the level to what his operation was, but not only that, the government was involved, but yet you're throwing away our lives. 
So that's something that's good. And then on top of that, I got treated like I was an El Chapo being transported from federal prison in freaking handcuffs and shackles where marshals are guarding me with life vests and shotguns and I'm sitting on the airplane knowing if something happens, my tail is going to die. Nobody's going to try to save me on a federal plane. We don't know where we're going in the middle of the night. Your family's traumatized, wondering what's happening to you because you can't communicate with them. It's just all kind of things that go on, and this should not be America. It should not be going on in this country. take a breath just hold I'll just hold space for a moment on that just take a minute to think about what it means to simply throw people away what do you do after you've made that decision you go home and have dinner with your kids like I don't know what you do you just say pass the salt literally and I will continue to say that when you are talking about millions of people, it is not a personal failure. It is a political decision. It is a policy decision. It is a choice to say who matters and who does not matter. And prisons make this country money. They make this country money. Target practices are made in prisons. The same thing that we're seeing all of these black boys be killed on on every screen we have, some other black man is sitting in prison making, right now, as we're at this conference. When we see those wildfires in California, those are California prisoners with almost no training who are being sent in to fight those fires. Missiles, pieces of missiles have been made in prisons. 50% of all American flags, the cups that Starbucks uses, Victoria's Secret underwear. Prisons make us money. And they've decided who is gonna fill that pipeline because we know there weren't jobs out here. And so as, as we have this conversation, and you never apologize on, on you know, I probably traumatize Kemba. Now, Kemba and I do a lot of programs together, and a lot of times they're on big stages where we have like this really limited time, five minutes, and I'm a, nobody wants to be edited by me. I'm not fun. Nobody wants it. Nobody wants it. Because I'm going in, you know, when you work in the magazine business, you cut things back. And so a lot of times we've been in a situation where I've, like, taken her speech and chopped it all up and said, you can say these three words. That's what we have time for. And But when we have a panel like this at DPA and we have time to stretch out and have the conversation, you say what you come to say. Because that's what the thing that's going to change people. So give Kemba another round of applause. That took a lot of heart. Daniel, I want to shift a little bit and think about the role that the media has played in some of the complicity. Most of us remember 48 hours on Crack Street and the way that coverage has changed in the media and the work that you're trying to do in, in shifting that. But would you talk about what you've seen and how the media has driven many of the perceptions and the myths that it seems to have pushed out so that the average person walking around has a perception of drug dealers and all of us. And I'm not, you know, I have to tell you one of the things in doing this work, you know, that I'm both embarrassed to admit, but it has, but it has to be true that one of the most shocking things that I found out was that the majority of people who use crack weren't black. Of course, it or sold, or sold it. And of course that kind of makes sense, given the numbers alone. But I remember being shocked by that because of, you know, things I've seen. So if I, right? But most of the people who smoke crack are white. Who knew? <laughs> and, and so there's just this ways that we drive this. Would you pull that apart a little bit for us? Yeah. Um, 
So I think everyone in this room, or mostly everyone in this room, understands that ending the drug war means ending prohibition full stop, which means no more arresting and incarcerating drug dealers. But um, even as we've seen public opinion really grow more empathetic to drug users as the, as the face in the media of drug users has become whiter, um, people still don't often get that that means that we need to end the war against drug dealers as well. And what's even more troubling is that I think with the opioid crisis in some ways what we're seeing is the deepening empathy for the white user potentially even fueling a greater sense of punitiveness towards the dealers that are harming these more idealized users. And I think the media um, often plays a really negative role and is deeply complicit in propagating very confused ideas about why so many people are dying from overdoses right now in the United States. And that the media coverage plays a major role in legitimating the growing use, for example, of these drug delivery resulting in death charges that we're seeing prosecutors around the country pick up to charge dealers with in cases where they uh, are accused of selling opioids that resulted in a fatal overdose. Um, I think the really key thing that the media fails to do is provide context. Um, with the opioid crisis, you almost never see an article in a paper like the New York Times that looks into why fentanyl has emerged. I have never seen an article in a, in a daily newspaper in the United States or seen something on TV explaining the iron law of prohibition, the fact that under prohibition, drug dealers are incentivized, systematically incentivized, to pack the most potent drug possible into the smallest quantity possible to maximize profits and minimize the possibility of detection from law enforcement. Instead, what we see is... Uh, Pull that apart a little bit. Let's oh, yeah, sorry. That, yeah. Let's <laughs> just say, how are drugs... How are we actually complicit? Say that a little bit more broadly. So... Let's say you're just like a, a drug dealer uh, trying to move drugs across the border from Mexico to the U.S., and you're kind of agnostic as to what kind of drug you'd like to move. Like, you'd just like to make some money because this is your job. Um, well, pot is not a great thing to try to bring across the border because it's really bulky. Um, so the smaller you can get something and the more potency you can pack into that, the more the more profitability you can pack into a smaller quantity, which makes it less likely to be detected by law enforcement. So fentanyl is the perfect drug to achieve this. And yet the media frames everyday drug dealers and even really drug users who just deal a little on the side to pay for their own, uh, pay for their own stuff um, as though they are murdering people by selling fentanyl when fentanyl is a structural outcome of drug prohibition and the drug war. But that critical context is missing. So we have these entrepreneurial opportunistic prosecutors all over the country uh, having these press conferences after someone fatally ODs and presenting this narrative that makes sense on the surface to a lot of people, which is uh, a narrative with a villain and a victim. This person, uh, is the, the villain who sold, who sold the drugs and this person died and they're the victim. And what we're going to do to make sure that there are fewer victims is punish this person mercilessly. And that's what these drug overdose homicide charges are doing. In Pennsylvania, which, where I've been researching these charges, uh, I think the maximum is, uh, is 40 years. And I just uh, am profiling a young woman um, who uh, one of the more recent times she tried to kill herself, uh, she went out um, behind her parents' house and laid down on commuter rail tracks and somehow survived when a commuter rail train ran over her. She's someone who is in no way conceivably like even a drug dealer by profession, but that label is so powerful that when the prosecutor, when the DA of Montgomery County, Pennsylvania gets up there and says, she sold someone fentanyl and then they died, um, and then lastly, I'll just say, I think it's really critical that we identify what the drug war, 
what the demon of drug de demonization of drug dealers political function is. And that is to legitimate the drug war. If the attention is on the drug dealers and the blame is put on them and drug, drug dealers are scapegoated for the harms that drugs cause, that's what keeps us from, that's, that's the last uh, refuge of prohibition. Because once we stop demonizing drug dealers, then we can understand that so many of these harms are caused by prohibition. And just to tie it back into the media, the media has a role, to, a, a, a basic ethical responsibility to tell that story and to provide historical context. Um, and that fails all the time. And one last thing I will say about that is looking back to, for example, the, the capture of El Chapo, Guzman, you mentioned that. Did anyone read a single article or see a single segment on the television news um, even attempting to explain whether the capture of El Chapo would do anything to uh, meet the drug war's own, own purported stated aims, which is, I guess, to like reduce the availability of illicit drugs in the United States. It wasn't even addressed as a possibility that it would do any good, which just shows the tunnel vision that the media has gotten into in this. In fact, what's happened in Mexico is that we've gone from uh, four dominant drug cartels in 2006 to uh, between nine and 20 now, and a massive, unbelievable level of violence as people try to take control of, of the illicit market. And that context is just never there in the media, and it's not never, but rarely, and it's infuriating. And it's causing harm. And that, well, that's exactly it. Just before you um, pass the microphone over, if you think about an entire generation being swept away, right? So I think one in two black men has now been to prison in the United States. Um, and, that's, and that's just in the black community. Um, how, how has that impacted the use of drugs in the United States? It's like, how's this working for us? Right. Yeah, like was it was it was it worth it? Did, did we accomplish this mission, but uh, uh, had all this collateral damage? Yeah. Uh, no, it's like uh, if you plotted, if you look at the overdose, uh, fatal overdose rates going back to 1980, and plot that graph right next to uh, a graph mapping the rise in incarceration rates in the United States, they both just skyrocket for decades. That's right. And because you, because we we don't also ask the question that if you've locked up all these people, how do you keep having these epidemics? Who's doing it? Where'd that go? You know what I mean? So, so are there other ways, Costanza, uh, to think about this in, in, in your travels um, uh, and your and your life in in, in Europe? You know, and, and somebody I had a colleague once who referred to you know Europe as a little bit more grown up than is a very reckless and undisciplined teenager in the United States. I don't know if that's totally correct, but there's something to that analogy. And is there, um, is there anything that we see differently about the way people who sell drugs are both viewed and treated in Europe that would be instructive to us here? Yeah, well, uh, good morning, everyone. Um, so I feel honored to be a part of this, this panel, and I appreciate the work DPA is doing to to reshape the, the, the vision and the image we, we have around uh, drug sellers. Because uh, overall, I think uh, we can also learn a lot from, from their perspective, the perspective of people who sell drugs, for shaping drug policy reform. I'm, well, I come from, from Spain. I will talk about my personal perspective for a moment. Um, I come from Spain. It's um, a country in southern Europe. It's just located, <clears throat> for those who don't have this country in your mind, it's located uh, between Morocco in the north of Africa and, and France in the north and Portugal. And since, uh, well, decades, we have been a, 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 a very key transit uh, hub for drugs traveling from uh, the Andes, basically, and the Americas to the European markets. So that means that uh, also, and also we have been a hub of transit from, uh, for uh, 
hashes uh, coming from North uh, Africa to European markets too. So just to to provide an, an idea, it's a, I would say the case of Spain, but Europe in general, um, many things are seen different compared to the US. And specifically about drug sellers, do you see in Europe a difference in the way that um, drug sellers are portrayed or the drug war itself is, I mean, it was, you know, I was in France earlier um, this year and it, mm -hmm. was, uh, it was interesting to see some of the harm reduction sites yeah. um, where the government basically, you know, funds it, right? Mm -hmm. They don't keep records on race, so you don't really know who's in prison, although mm -hmm. you do know it anecdotally, mm -hmm. you know, um, who's there. And I just, I wonder where Europe is in, in determining um, how drug sellers are seen, and if there's any advice or thoughts that you have mm -hmm. about what we can do here, because most places are not having this conversation. Mm -hmm. For most places, it's easy. Once you say somebody's a drug seller, it's as much as saying, throw them away. And I don't only mean that in white communities, right? A lot of times we talk about race and, and, and you know, the challenges that we have to pull apart. I, I've, I write for black publications. I'm telling you what black people say. Right? When I've covered Kemba's case and other cases, it was black people who were like, well, they sold the drugs. I had arguments at, at the Essence table about Dorothy Gaines having 19 years and seven months. What's wrong with that? People say. Black women. Not Susan Taylor, though, just to be clear. For all the sisters in the house, you know, not Queen Mother, but other folks. But so I wonder in, in, in Europe, is there a difference in the way that drug sellers are even seen? Well, I would say in the case of the Spain, the stigma is, <clears throat> is not that um, hard as I see here in the US. I, I, well, I come from Europe, but I, I have also lived in the US, so I, I know the reality and, and also I've been working on drug policy issues for, for 10 years now. So I have a, a um, let's say, a learning from, from both sides. In, in the case of Spain, we, we don't have this uh, such a big stigma. We have a, 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 an initial conditions that are more favorable for in general in terms of drug law because drug use has never been criminalized. And, and, and also we have... Uh, we have uh, I'm, I'm sorry, you're saying drug use is not criminalized in Europe? No, in Spain. Oh, it in depends Spain. on oh. the country. Okay. Yeah, in oh, Spain oh. has never been criminalized. <laughs> The thing is, even if drug use is not criminalized, the, the, the key point on, on this issue is that uh, how we define personal use and possession for personal use. That's the, 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 the key difference. So in the case of Spain, we don't have a threshold. We don't have, uh, we have some uh, orientative indications by the Supreme Court to determine who, is, who can be considered um, a drug seller or who would be just considered like being in possession for personal use. So um, the, the, the judge has more uh, uh, more margin room for maneuver. But the thing is that the, the more, well, the less the, the, the less defined is in the, in the law, that's, um, I'd say, better because if, if the threshold is very low, then it doesn't work either. But if you, if, when you leave uh, two room to judges, also, other issues may apply, uh, apply and that's where the, 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 um, the stigma or racism and other considerations come to, into the table. For example, we, 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 in the case of Spain, uh, half of the, of the population incarcerated for drug-related crimes is, is uh, of foreign origin. Uh, from this group, half of them come from, from African countries, mostly Morocco and one third comes from, from, from Colombia or Andean countries. Many of, of women incarcerated in Spain for drug, drug um, use or sell are, are mules, for drug uh, crimes, sorry, are, are mules. And, and, so we, and we also have a, a, an important Roma community that it's, has been like traditionally involved in, in, in drug selling. So I would say, in the case of Spain, and this is something that could be applied to France too, or to many European countries, I would say the stigma comes not uh, just for the fact of being a drug seller, but depending on 
what's your social background, what's your the color of your skin, and what the, the, the money you have in your in your pocket, the neighborhood you live in. So it's, uh, it's far beyond about drug selling. I think that's very similar to what's happening here. So that essentially that if you're in Spain and from Spain, mm -hmm. um, that you'll probably be treated very differently than if you're, for example, from Morocco or North Africa. Because that's where, uh, yeah. uh, do you know Dr. Estelia Johnny's work? on a lot of, of the, you know, her work, you know, on the women who were coming from North Africa and populate all the Italian jails, yeah. for example. And so that, that so, so I guess, the, but it's not, is it not in the media every day? Mm -hmm. So that, because here I think we're very impacted and where we get buy-in is the constant, um, it's the constant images in the media mm -hmm. that we see 48 hours on Crack Street was really dangerous, but it's not just that. It's the way that Sam Samuel Jackson um, played. What was that movie he did where he played uh, somebody who used crack? Remember what I'm at? Came in the house looking all crazy all the time. Took his mama's TV. Just look out a nut. And even and even if you think about right, Jungle Fever. But even in a movie, did anybody see Moonlight? Did anybody see Moonlight? Right? Did we love? I love Moonlight, and I ride for Moonlight. Except. When it came to talking about the mother, you know, um, in that movie Who Used Crack, of course, she got no backstory at all, but it was interesting. It was like the only film where we saw Juan in that who did get a backstory. It was the first time you saw a drug seller, much to like what Kenny was describing, in a hum humane context. And I want to think about how we continue to remember that the one thing that is true about anybody who sells drugs, the one thing that we know is true, and the one thing that is not a myth is that every single one of them are human beings, right? Every single one. And how do we begin to have that conversation after some people have been made not people? They've been made demons. And you know what, Kenny, talk a little bit about um, you know, because we, as to, to Costanza's point, people are like conflated, right? Like who becomes a kingpin, who into what, you know, Daniel was saying and who's a seller. Just talk about the average, you, you were like, I, not that you're not a star now, but I think you were kind of like an average, cause you know, but in the game, in the game you was a little average, right? So I want to get a realistic picture on a day in the life. And I say this because, you know, my son, May he rest was a drug seller. I'm like, he was an average dude. He didn't like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I knew he lived in a busted little apartment. The biggest thing he had was sneakers. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't, he wasn't fly. He didn't have a car. I wasn't big time like Kimber. So I want to say like a day in the life of the average drug seller in America is what? So... In the day in the life of the average drug seller, you know, it's just like a job. I mean, <laughs> you know, we have to learn all the dynamics and the metrics and all that, how to buy wholesale, sell retail, uh, how to recover. You have to really, really know your customers and who, you know, you're dealing with because there's certain folks that I could just give the normality of the way I cut my dope and then there's certain folks I have to give a little extra. You know, certain folks I can get away with giving a little less. You know, certain <laughs> folks I could tell when they fiending just right, you know, I ain't gonna let this nigga rob me. Let me go and throw him a little something, something. So it, it's really, really a, 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 a competitive thing, not competing against each other. You know, like when I was in Miami, it's, it's, it's a thousand people on one block trying to sell 10, make $10. That's, when that's I'm what in, I want to get to. You, you I mean, know, did you have a big mansion that you didn't tell me about to put in the prenup? No, I just no, want to know. No. So, you know, like, I wish Beefy was here. I was trying to get him to come. That's who I was texting. So Beefy and all them would come. I, we had a thing that we made, like, they got Alcohol Anonymous and all that. My mother right here tell you, we started Ballers Anonymous, right? And in Ballers Anonymous, we met with one of the kids that came out of Macray Homes. That's a project in Alabama. And she went to cussing Beefy out about how she, he took from her little brother. And he was like, I don't even know you, you know. And she was like, you came and sold my mama these drugs, and she took the money, and 
and gave you all the money so he couldn't get his school clothes and took our TV and sold it so she could give it to you and this and that and the other. And people was like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about me? My kids ain't have nothing to eat. I'm out here selling drugs. I didn't know that was you and your mama. I don't even know you. You know, so it's those kind of dilemmas we had to deal with. And Beefy turns around whenever he gets there, I'm going to introduce you to him. And he goes and buys her brother and her all these school clothes. Those, that's the life of a drug dealer. We have to deal with all that. But our main competition is not only worried about, you know, trying to make ends meet to where we have to, you know, pay our own bills and take care of our own families. But then we have a whole bunch of other stuff that a normal business person don't have to deal with. Because we got to worry about the police and them coming to get us or catching us or this and that and the other. And then we got to worry about the people who rob because they may be trying to rob us at the same time. So that's a whole nother added pressure. And then to even add on top of that, we got to worry about the people who are our consumers. Because who's to say when they don't feel like they finna rob us because we didn't just give them what they wanted at the exact time. Talk about the job opportunities that were available at the time that you were selling drugs. What were most people... What, what work did most people go to in Dothan, Alabama at that nah, time? Nah, there wasn't no job opportunity. You go to McDonald's, that's about it. McDonald's might hire you. You might get a job at the temp service, depending on how well you're known as a drug dealer. And it didn't have nothing to do with your conviction, depending on how well you was known. You understand what I'm saying? And then you could get a job at McDonald's. You might get a job. They used to let you get a job at the chicken plant. But then if you got a felony, you couldn't get a job there. We done changed all that now, but we're talking about back when I was selling drugs. So the only thing you had was an opportunity to sell drugs. That's all we had. All we had, you know, and let me break this down real quick, and then we can pass it on. In our communities, most of our communities, and I done did a little research on it, most of our communities are the poorest communities, but yet we're the biggest consumers. So our cities that we live in thrive off every business that of the, every business in the city we live in thrives off of the poor community because we're the biggest consumers. So when we're out there selling drugs, we are trying to consume and give back to our own. A lot of people don't know it's an oxymoron, but most of your drug dealers are out there selling drugs not only to take care of themselves, but to rebuild their own community. So you got people like me now that's buying all the property where I used to sell drugs at, where I used to use drugs at. I'm buying up all that property right now from the people who used to be on drugs and from the people that's pouring on and just got them living in their same damn house. Because the government ain't going to do it. Nobody else going to do it. And if I could take that drug money and I could make that good, i tell you what, take a church, take a preacher, no matter how much he demonized, take him a tenth of that drug money and see if he refuses. That's what the hell you do. Wow. So I know Kemba wants to get in here really quick and then I want to open it up and we've got about 28 minutes left. And I'd like to hear from you as we begin to really think critically about how we... Uh, you know, sent, really, it's really if we're gonna do if we're gonna do sentencing reform and criminal justice reform, you have to center drug dealers. That's really who's at risk here. Those are really where the charges are going and driving the numbers and the years in prison. And so, yes, and so so we're gonna hear from um, Kemba on that and and Lynn on that, and then I'd like to hear from you from the drug sellers. Um perspective for, for me and, and, and me being on the panel I was the girlfriend and, and and you may think as the girlfriend we were living the life this that and the third well no there was a particular point where and and Peter who was the drug dealer that I was with my son's father he was average I can remember an average drug dealer I can remember um, coming to a Greek picnic here in Atlanta with some friends and him and that was the first time when I looked around and I saw other hustlers, I'm just being real, and when I looked around, I was just like, oh, well, it's guys dealing drugs that's way bigger than my man. Like, I, <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't understand. So he was average, but he was also very giving. And I do recall those memories from him, but also too, um, 
There were a couple of nights when I was seven months pregnant, and this is one of the reasons why Peter had me go back home to my parents was because he felt like he wasn't man enough to take care of me because there were a couple of nights we slept in the bus station, a couple of days we didn't know where we were going to get our next meal from. And so most drug dealers, most smart drug dealers like Jay-Z, Biggie, other people that we've heard of, they have a dream of making a certain amount of money and having these legal businesses and getting out of the drug game. It's not something that they want to do forever. They recognize what they're doing, but it's an end to a means when they don't see any other opportunity for them to be on that level. And so for him, for Peter, I know that he had the dream of getting out of the business. And even in Atlanta, once he tried to get out and have a legal business, I remember it was on Ponce de Leon Avenue, some kind of shop. But I just want everybody to keep in mind on this drug seller thing. And as the government looks at this big picture and you think of America and family, they are human beings. Don't demonize them to where their children hate them, where my son hates him. So it was important for me in raising my son for him to realize that his father was a human being, that he was giving, that he was loving, that he was intelligent. One of those things, those things is what helped build him to stay on the road to education and to get a full ride to Washington, T Washington and Lee University and do all these wonderful things and be successful working in New York because I made sure that he knew that his father wasn't a demon and that he accentuated the positive of what his father's character was. So I just wanted to make sure that, like you say, that these are human beings and raising their children and moving forward in the bigger picture. We've got to dismantle what's already been put out there and, 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 and people have been educated on and that I don't know where we start. I guess we're starting here, but it is so much of mass America when you know President Obama was commuting um, first time of mostly first time offenders, drug dealers, census. It hurt me to read comments from different people talking about they deserve to be where they are. Why is he freeing all these black drug dealers and this, this, that? But I received commutation. Do you do you know my story? And that's what Jeff Sessions, I remember Sally Yates being on a panel where I posed a question to her and I gave her the breakdown of my case and story. And she act like she didn't know that first time drug offenders um, have these conspiracy charges. And even though I never handled, used or sold the drugs that I got X amount of time. Do these policymakers even know how much of a dramatic effect that these policies are having on families? No. So I wish that we could have the opportunity to sit and re-educate them on the things that they voted yes to. Lynn, and then we'll come to Kenny. Yeah, real quick. I think, um, you know, I, I've gotten to know families because I go to the prison a lot. And, um, you know, you see these children coming in to see their dad in that case. I love my dad, T-shirts, so excited, just jumping all around, jump into his arms crawl all over him, uh, so the family is just so soaking up that time. But it's a really different child going down in that elevator. They have been torn from their father's arms. They are crushed. They are harmed. They are suffering. And one mom said, you know, my kids had straight A's before this, and now I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to keep the family together. You know, it's hard to be, uh, just live sometimes and have this going on. Uh, is so damaging, and it's statistically been proven that those kids are more likely to end up in prison too. So, you know, the, the question is, it hasn't stopped anybody from using drugs as far as, we, you know, we, that's irrefutable. It's cost a, a trillion dollars. So why do they keep doing it? I mean, even the government must realize this, you know? And I've come to the conclusion, it's an expansion of power. Our protections, our constitutional protections are being shredded. The Fourth Amendment's practically uh, useless. Uh, if it's about drugs, it takes a backseat in the courts. It's a drug exception, uh, civil forfeiture, surveillance is going to be discussed later today. This is a, a very frightening trend, and they're using the drug war as an excuse. And people are like, well, we have to be safe, and so it's okay. And it's, um, it's a, a very, very, very alarming thing. And people need to realize, don't fear drug sellers. Fear the government. That is what's really something to be afraid of. 
Thank you, Lynn. And one other thing, just yeah. real quick. This, is, this statistic is shocking because when I was growing up, hardly anybody got life sentences except, you know, mass murderers, real threats to safety. Now there are over 200,000 people serving life or virtual life. 17,000 are, like my son, nonviolent, no violent charges at all. Haven't threatened anyone. 17,000 people serving life that are nonviolent. And um, this is, it's metastasizing. It's not, it's, it's growing. It has to be stopped. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. I know you wanted 30 seconds, Kenny. Yeah. So real quick, most of us don't realize my mother's sitting here. And one of the biggest things that my mother or any other woman I was with in relationship or whatever tell you, I would get money from them to get my drugs and to sell them and this and that and up. And one of the biggest things I want y'all to realize is that when they give us these titles like drug dealers and big time drug dealers and known drug dealers and this and that and the other, you know what my mother would always ask the judge every time I go to court all 14 damn times? If he's such a big drug dealer, then why the hell I got to pay his bond? Costanza, is, is there one policy that you think we should import from Europe that would help undo some of the, you know, I think Western Europe, which has more, just to put it in context, which has more people in the United States, so all of Western Europe, it's not just like we're, we're, we're the most incarcerated than any other country. If you took everybody who's locked up in Western Europe and put them in a room, with, and they have, there's more people there than there are in the United States... We, they, we would still lock up more people. We would still. And I just wonder if there's like, if they could take, if we could take one thing from Europe that would begin to undo the criminalization and incarceration of so many people, what would that one thing be? Um, let me take another example from Latin America. Because mm. I'm, I'm, I'm not proud of any, any of the policies regarding drug sellers we have in Europe right now. So it's a, uh, well, sentences are fewer, are less long, but uh, there is uh, one example from, from Costa Rica. A few years ago, they passed a reform to their drug law. I think it's very interesting, and I would appreciate, I don't know if there is any colleague from Latin America in the room or from Costa Rica that could give... Well, they decriminalized drugs in Costa Rica, just to name that. Right. Yeah, um, but on the top of that, what they introduced is a gender a gender-based uh, uh, reform to take into consideration the women that were, were charged for introducing drugs in prison, to take into consideration their family conditions, if they were head of family, if they have child in their, uh, on their charge or elder, or if they come from a very vulnerable situation or the socioeconomical condition. So I think, I think this is a great uh, example that we could, um, we could learn and, and, and import to, to, to other countries, to, to my countries, to the US, is to, to take into consideration the social conditions in which uh, people commit the, the, the crime they are, they are being charged for and especially for women, and for women head of families, for women in charge of children, for women in charge of elder. Of, of so like fam family impact statements, which is interesting to think about. 75% of men who go to prison are at the moment they're put in prison involved with their children. And we don't often see that, especially when it comes to black men. And most people in prison are not thought about often as fathers, right? They're only... You know, Dorsey Nunn talks about that a lot, that he's a father and a grandfather, but he's only ever engaged as somebody who was incarcerated. And, and Daniel, I, I want to kind of ask you the flip side, and then I'm going to come out and see if any of you... Have, are, there, are there questions in the audience? Just by a show of hands. Okay, so I'm going to come out and do that. But, you know, the other, the other side of this is, like, I feel like we keep falling for the okey-doke. Yeah. All the time. And, you know, in my mind, I have to be honest, like... I have sometimes a hard time talking about the opioid crisis because that word gets so overused. I'm trying to really understand, you know, what that means. And so the flip side of that question is, is what is the biggest threat that we now face to freedom and to um, how we see our fellow human being and the way that you're sort of seeing that covered? I think the biggest threat to keep our eyes on right now 
is someone mentioned this the other day at a panel, is this uh, the way that the media is framing uh, fentanyl with this idea of fentanyl exceptionalism and this um, way of representing what's going on with fentanyl in a way that obscures why, why it's actually killing people. So the media frames uh, fentanyl um, in a way that doesn't explain that it's the, that it's drug prohibition that allowed for fentanyl to uh, enter the market the way it has. And then because of drug prohibition, people don't know what they're taking and uh, what the dosage, what the correct dosage that won't kill them will be. And that's, when that's not there in the, in the media coverage, that allows the media to then uh, be complicit in law enforcement efforts to blame the drug dealer for it. So I think that we've seen that, we, we saw it with crack in the, in the 80s and, and 90s, and now with fentanyl, it's when, whenever there's like a, a, a panic around a particular drug, um, the, the media is, the role the media is playing is in not, is in not providing context. I think that's what we have to, no, I love, I love that you say that, Daniel, because even if, as we think about it, you, you would think with the numbers of people who've died, there's been 130,000 in the last two years have died of an overdose, that somebody might do some service reporting, say, don't mix this with this, right? Fentanyl is 12 times as strong as heroin. So if you do it, do it in this side. I mean, if you really wanted to save lives, if that was really the goal and the refusal to just to put out real education to makes, makes us worse. Makes us worse. I'd rather see you die than give you the no, you know what I mean, than, than no. You know what I mean? Like, I, I want Prince alive. I want him here. I want to listen to his music. I'm a huge Prince fan. You know what I'm saying? Like, bring him back. Somebody, but he had so much shame about using drugs that he never told anybody and didn't learn the correct dosage. That's why people are dying. Not because, right? Not because drugs are out here, but that's why. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As a Prussian undercover cop once overheard Marx exclaim, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. This week, three of them. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Thanks to Patrick Rashley for letting us into this wonderful studio at Brown University's library. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if that's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews, sure, they feed the Apple Borg, but they also help introduce us to new listeners, which is a small, humble step forward for humanity. Last but not least, please find us on patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing running.